three things that, you know, there are five statements that we said that we're going to discuss. We discussed three of them up to this point. The first one that we looked at was that alcoholic beverages are dangerous. Uh, Proverbs 21, 20 verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker and beer or intoxicating drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Um, you know, the first statement that could be made, and uh, it's not a matter of uh, debating all the things that we don't understand. It's looking clearly at the things that are said, and uh, we have to come to a conclusion as you look at this, and that is, you know, basically alcoholic beverages are dangerous for three reasons. Number one, they're deceptive. And we've all been through situations where we've heard people say, well, what can one drink do? One drink can't hurt anything. Uh, you, know, I, um, you know, and you go through this process of justifying that it's not really a problem. It's deceptive in nature. It's, uh, it also has to do with um, uh, being destructive. It's a, a brawler or violence is associated with those who get drunk and typically fights break out because of it. And the last thing is uh, in Proverbs 23:33 was that you would see strange things or perverse things, things that are not true according to uh, God's principles, and that it would diminish our inhibitions of doing things that we normally wouldn't do but that we would do when we're intoxicated. And so the first thing that we looked at was that alcoholic beverages are dangerous. The second thing that we saw were alcoholic beverages are denied to certain people in the Bible in certain times and for certain purposes. And as we go through this, we saw that it was denied for priests, and specifically for priests who were ministering in the inner court. Um, I had a gentleman challenge me on that last week, and it was very valid. He said, you know, the Bible doesn't say that, that drinking was prohibited to priests anywhere outside of the inner court. And that's exactly correct according to the context that we looked at. Uh, but on the other hand, we can't imply that it was okay to drink outside the inner court, nor does it, you know, the Bible doesn't prohibit it on the outside, nor does it encourage it on the outside. So we've got to be careful that we don't read into it either way, one way or the other. Now, the, the rest of them that we talked about were very specific. The role of a Nazarite, the role of prophets, kings, princes, bishops, elders, leaders in the church, deacons, and specifically John the Baptist was mentioned. And the reason for it was very simple as we go down through and we studied all these was that God wants us to be clear-minded people. He wants us to understand clearly what the Word of God has to say. Uh, he wants us to be in a leadership position that we're not clouded or um, in any way obscure that which we should be doing as far as leaders um, to ensure that right things are done. And so alcoholic beverages were denied to certain people at certain times and for certain reasons. The third thing was that alcoholic beverages were designed to help people forget their misery. Um, the obvious, there's an obvious relationship that we went into between drinking and dealing with problems in life, whether they're real or imaginary. And uh, several of us can probably relate stories or even relate stories of other people who turn to booze to somehow or another anesthetize themselves from the difficulties that they go through in life. And uh, often the temptation is there to turn to it when we're going through tough times. Uh, I can think of one particular gal uh, that I'm thinking of right now whose uh, husband had passed away, and as a result, she turned to, to drinking at that point and has, very, has, at this present time, a very serious problem with uh, drinking because it was a way to anesthetize herself from the difficulties that she was going through and losing someone that she was very close to. And we can relate to that, whether you're losing a job and financial difficulties, whether it's a, you know, a problem with in, in your marriage, a problem with your spouse, like, you know, like Bruce was saying. You know, we all go through difficult times in life, and uh, we have choices as far as how to deal with those difficulties. And many times in the world we live in, we're encouraged to turn to alcoholic beverages as a source of uh, anesthetic, so to speak, to keep us from having to deal with the things that we need to deal with in life. You know, the verses, uh, obviously, you know, it says in Proverbs 31, 6 and 7, Give beer to those who are intoxicating drink to those who are perishing. Wine to those who are in anguish. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. 
And uh, it would be easy to read that and think that that was a command of God somehow, that when we're going through a tough time, you know, we're encouraged to give one another, you know, booze to help settle the problems that we have. But nowhere in Scripture does God encourage God's people to turn anywhere other than but to Him. And, uh, you know, the Bible is very clear, and we know according to Romans 8.28 that, that God does call all things to work together, cause all things to work together for good, to those who love the Lord and are called according to His purposes. And uh, it's interesting, and I don't think it's a coincidence with all the material that I've been reading and studying that in the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, their 12-step program, uh, many of the steps encourage those who are struggling to turn to a higher power. And let me read a couple of those things. Step number two says, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Step number three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Step number five, we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Number six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Number seven, we humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings from our life. The point of it is very simple, and I think that the Bible continually encourages us to turn to God for our source of strength, for our source of comfort, for our source of deliverance from all the problems and struggles of, of this world. Psalm 51, if you want to read a great psalm on brokenness and a contrite heart, is the, uh, is the, uh, the psalm that deals with the, uh, David asking for forgiveness for his sexual sin that he committed with Bathsheba. And he goes through it, and one of the things that he shares in verse 17 was he said, Oh God, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will never despise. A person who gets to a point of brokenness in his life and turns to God for forgiveness, realizing that they cannot do it on their own, that there is no power within themselves, that they have to turn to someone who is greater than them, God will never turn that prayer away. And so as we look at this, alcoholic beverages are encouraged by a world and, and invented basically by a world for a world that has not the hope that we have. And so we've got to ask ourselves the question, why as a Christian would we ever need to turn to booze for anything? And uh, why would we need to turn to drink to anesthetize the problems of our life when we've got someone far greater that we can lean on for comfort and support? He says, cast all your burdens upon me and I'll care for you. You know, we don't need to do what the world has to do to try to deal with life's problems. And if you look at that verse, you know what? I mean, there's no hope and deliverance in that. It just says, hey, you know what? This is the natural ways of man to try to leave the, alleviate the difficulties of life. And we all go through it. So it leads to the final two points or statements that I want to make, and then we'll kind of tie it all together as far as how to respond to the things that we've learned over the last couple of weeks. But there are several passages in the Bible that at first glance, um, if we're honest with one another, would appear that God is promoting drinking alcoholic beverages. And uh, I think that some of us would know what some of those passages are. I've had a man say to me, hey, well, what about the wedding at Cana? I mean, Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. It was party time. It was a wedding. I mean, it was open bar, right? I mean, that's basically what it was. And you look at that and go, okay, well, that's an interesting point. And so what I want to do is, uh, is share some things with you from, from, so that you have a good understanding of what those passages say so that we are not like those who respond without having an understanding of why we believe what we believe or know specifically what those passages are referring to. But the point that we can make, and make it categorically, is that alcoholic beverages are fermented to a stage uh, that is not recommended anywhere in the Bible. You will not find anywhere in the Bible that alcoholic beverages are encouraged by God. You say, well, what about those passages that we're talking about? Well, let, let me share. Here's one with you. Um, oh, in fact, you know, if you look at this, Proverbs 23, 29, and 31 says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? And the answer is those who linger over wine. 
who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. He says, do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. Now, some of you are great. You're probably reading this saying, you know what, though? But I drink white wine. So, you know, <laughs> I found another out. You know what I mean? It's kind of like we, have, we can manipulate this stuff any way that you want to manipulate it, man. It's so funny when you look at this. But he answers the obvious question. You know, the stage of fermentation, the debate that goes on as far as what this actually means, you know, will probably be debated from now until eternity. But there's one thing that we can't debate. And that is simply this. Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. Uh, the warning or the admonition of God is, you know what? Whatever that stage of fermentation is, stay away from it. Don't look at it. Don't contemplate it. Don't think about it. Don't be tempted by it. Just, just stay away from it. And that's the wisest thing to do. But what about those occasions, like we talked about a second ago, when uh, you say, well, you know what, though? But I think the Bible encourages it. And in fact, if you've got your Bibles, look at Psalm 104. Psalm 104. And tell me if you don't think that the Bi this is being, you're, you're being encouraged to drink here. Psalm 104. <clears throat> look at verses 14 and 15. It says, God causes the grass to grow for the cattle, vegetation for the labor of man. So that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad. There you go. So that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. So you read this and you say, well, look at this. God causes the grass to grow for cattle, vegetation for labor, so man bring forth earth from food. Oh, and look at this. And God causes wine to grow which makes man's heart glad. And you look at this and say, well, you know what? Isn't that encouraging? I mean, drinking alcoholic beverages. I mean, it's God who makes this. It's God who created it. And therefore, it's to be enjoyed and to appreciate. But let me ask you a question. What, what's being talked about in the context of the verse? Somebody help me out. What's being talked about? Huh? The provisions of God, right? I mean, if you look at the context, what's it saying? You know what? God's the one who sustains us. He provides all of our needs. He provides food for us. He provides clothing for us. He provides, you know, if you want to go, look at Matthew and uh, check it out where Jesus said, look at the birds of the air and all the rest around you and don't I provide for them, God says, and don't, well, certainly I'll provide for you. And the context of the passage is very simple, that God provides for all of our needs. So it's a matter of God's provision. It's thanking him for what he did. God provides wine that makes heart, man's heart glad. Well, some would read that and say, well, it has to do with, hey, getting a buzz, drinking wine. It kind of gives you that little happy little feeling, you know what I mean? And uh, yet, on the other hand, if you look at it, well, then I guess also you've got to put oil on your face to glisten and, uh, you know, and eat food which sustains your heart. So it's good to eat food that sustains your heart. Now, what does that mean? Then we get in a whole cholesterol debate, I guess. I don't know. <clears throat> but you go through it, and, and the obvious point as we look at this thing is that you'll, you'll find nowhere in any Jewish commentary, which helps us to understand the context of this particular occasion, you'll find nowhere in any Jewish commentary that says that, uh, that alcoholic beverages should be fermented to a stage uh, or wine should be fermented to a stage that creates alcoholic beverages, and that's what this passage is referring to. It's very simply referring to the, the, uh, the provisions of God. That when God provides for us, it should make our heart glad. Ecclesiastes 9, 7, and 8. I'll just read it, read it to you. It says, Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white and let your head lack no oil. 
And in this particular phrase, it's talking about enjoying life with your spouse. It's talking about the relationship that we had that God has provided, He's blessed us with. And if you read that, you look at this and go, okay, if, if we're to drink wine with a merry heart, which doesn't mean that the wine makes the heart merry, but we're to drink heart with the heart of appreciation for what God has done, if you want to distort it, then I guess you'd also always have to wear white clothes, nothing in plaid and, and nothing dark, and your head would always have to lack no oil. So I guess the greasy look would be in. Uh, if you really want to be, you know, exact to what it says. So obviously you look at that and say, well, it says wine will make my heart glad. No, it says to enjoy wine with a glad heart, a heart of appreciation or gladness for what God has done. The second thing is, so as you look at this, they're not the wine that reminds us of the blessing of God. The second thing is, and they're not the wine that was created by Jesus at the wedding of Cana. Now, if you've got your Bibles, look at John chapter 2. It's real important that we understand this because some of us use it for arguments as to why, you know, we would want to drink. You know, it's really interesting, too, as you're turning to that and you look at John chapter 2, is, uh, isn't it funny that w the first impression that we get as far as celebrating life, it seems like the only way you can celebrate and really enjoy life is if you drink alcoholic beverages? Isn't that interesting, though? I mean, think about it. How many of you get that impression? Think about celebration. Any victory of any team when they celebrate, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Popping a champagne. It's part of the good life, right? Uh, the beer commercials that you see that, that want you to gather together on weekends. You know, hey, you know what? Uh, uh, Heineken and good friends, and, you know, that's what it's all about, and that's how you enjoy yourself, and that's what life's all about. And what's interesting, I talk to a lot of guys who aren't Christians, and the first thing they say is, man, you know what? I, I don't want to give up drinking. Say, hey, you don't have to give up drinking to become a Christian. You just need to accept Jesus. Say, well, yeah, but you know, I don't want to give up drinking. Why? Why? Because the association is that, number one, if I become a Christian, that that couldn't be right as far as a lifestyle. Or number two is that I don't think I could have any fun if I'm not out partying and drinking and, and doing the things that I do. There can't be any fun to life if you can't drink. So the immediate implication or the immediate inference as you read through these things, sometimes you think, you know what? This has to be talking about drinking because that's how we in our culture celebrate life. How can we celebrate life without drinking? Isn't it funny? Social occasions, social gatherings, you have people over, the first thing you think is, you know, the way the structure of the world is, is that you offer them a drink. Why? Because that's how you celebrate life. And so then we read the Bible and it says to celebrate life a certain way, we automatically assume that that must be what God's saying about this passage. And so now here it is at the wedding, and we've all been to weddings. How many of you have been to weddings? How many of you are still up today? Thank you very much. Man, you got to wake up! This is depressing up here. Man, you're all like... Man, you know, I don't want to be here any more than you do. And uh, thank you very much. Now, that got a little attention there, didn't it? You remember being a hand truck, and they had a dolly out there. I'll bring one in. We'll set it right up here again. Usher, get this one over here. We'll just kind of like wheel you out, you know what I mean? It's like you start dozing off, you're out of here. But think about it. I'm glad to be your bud. Yeah, and I'm glad to be your bud, too. And uh, what, uh, what were we talking about? Oh, weddings. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. Weddings. How many of you have ever been to a wedding? Hey, 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 hey. There we go. How many of you have been to an open bar wedding? Hey, love those. How many of you have been to, like, you know, you have to pay and you boot it? Oh, man. Yeah, you know how that goes. I know how you are. But we've all been there, right? We've seen that. I did a wedding once. It was great. And the, and the bride was 45 minutes late. And they had an open bar beforehand to kind of calm the crowd down. You, you've never seen anything like this. This is the most unbelievable thing. We're out in the Balboa Bay Club. They had an open bar. We're out on the deck. And by now, everybody's like ripped. And uh, the best man's got a beer in his hand. He's leaning on the guy's shoulder, the, the, uh, the groom. 
And, uh, and then when I started to get into certain parts about being faithful and stuff, uh, this gal, this is uh, like the second or third marriage and their children there, and the, and the gal's girls start laughing. Saying, oh, 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 that's a good one there, preacher man. And, uh, you know, I was like, oh, man. You know, and then afterwards, the groom came to me and said, hey, man, you really worked a tough crowd out there tonight. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, it's a tough crowd. We worked a tough crowd. But uh, so we've all been there, right? So the first thing you think of is you read this passage. Look at Luke, man, Luke, John 2. Uh, read this passage, and the first thing that comes to mind is, hey, man, Jesus is a pretty cool guy. He got an open bar working for him here. You know, look at verses 9 and 10. So here's what happened, right? They, they ran out of wine. And so Jesus said to him, he said, and he said to them, draw some out now, talking about water the head waiter they took to him. Okay? Uh, when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants had drawn the water new, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said this, Every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, then that which is poor, you have kept the good wine until now. All right, you read this, what do you think? All right, usually they put the cheap booze out first. That's the way I read this. I go, man, you know what? Usually put the cheap stuff out when they're a little lit up, then, you know, then, then, you know or, or you bring out the good stuff first. When they get lit, then you bring out the cheap stuff, right? And uh, that's the way you think, and that's the way you would read into this and think that's what happened, right? And so, but this guy was all stunned because I was like, man, you put out the, the good stuff, but then you brought out the better stuff. You did this backwards. Well, what's he talking about? Well, here's what will help us understand it. It says, usually every man serves the good wine. Now, in Jewish culture, the good wine, listen to this, this is important. The good wine was the wine that was only 40 days old that was used for the wine tithe of the Old Testament. So the good wine was the wine that was 40 days old or newer. The freshest was the best wine. The good wine would have been, the best would have been in the first week. And here's why. When they go out and pick grapes, they put them in these big vats. And, the, and they, they go out and fill up the vats in, the, in a wine press. <clears throat> and the pressure of the weight of the grapes smashes all the grapes in the bottom before they get their crubby, dirty feet in there and start stepping all over them. All right? So listen to this. So the good stuff's in the bottom. And the weight of the grapes goes on the top. It smashes the stuff in the bottom so that the, the, the juice that comes out, the grape juice or the wine that comes out, is the best. You follow this? So now what Jesus did was he had all these 20 and 30-gallon uh, containers, and he filled them with water, and he changed them into the good wine. Could you imagine how many grapes it would take to fill eight, 180 or 160 gallons of the good wine that comes just out of the pressure of the weight of the grapes before anybody steps on it, before it's pressed in a wine press? It was just the stuff that was coming out from the very bottom. Could you imagine how many grapes it would take to fill that? That's why it was, a, it was a true miracle of God. And so what blew these people away was, man, you served the, the crummy stuff first and you kept the best stuff till last. Isn't that funny how God does things? Everything God does is reverse of what we think should be done. His ways aren't our ways. His thoughts aren't our ways. You know, It's like we try to understand it. It makes no sense. And that's why we just have to trust God and believe what he says is true. Because everything in life's a paradox. God says you want to be great, be a servant. God says you want to be first, you be last. God says you want everything, then ask for nothing. It's a weird deal, but it's God's program, so it's okay. But, uh, <clears throat> but anyway, what's the point? Well, the point's very simple, that all the good stuff came out the bottom. Now, it doesn't say after they had been drunk, 
It says that after men have drunk freely. You follow that? There's a big difference. It wasn't that they were drunk. It's that they had drunk freely. Now, have you ever been somewhere and you've eaten so much that by the time you're into the last portion, it's like, doesn't taste good anymore? All right. Now, maybe you can understand this. What happens is, is that they had so much to eat and so much to drink, and it doesn't necessarily mean it was alcoholic in contact. It just means they had so much of everything that by the time they got to the end, that's when they would bring out the crummy stuff because people's palates couldn't taste the difference between whether it was good or bad because they had eaten too much and, dr and drank too much. So the wine that's being referred to in this particular miracle is not alcoholic beverage at all. And, it, and it's taken it out of context extremely so to be able to say that it is. It was the good wine, and the good wine was that which is 40 days old or less. It was that which came out of the bottom of the press before any man had touched it or stepped on it or crushed it. It was the best that God had made. And it changes the whole context of that, doesn't it? And the third thing that we're going to look at is, and it's not the wine that relieves stomach problems. How many times have you heard this one quoted? This is so good. It's like this, okay? This is so funny. 1 Timothy 5.23. Hey, uh, Timothy, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and uh, for your frequent infirmities. How many of you have ever said that? Yeah, a little wine, a little wine, yeah, my stomach's not a little upset. Okay, you know what I mean? We, we've all heard that. We've seen that. And, and we need to understand the context of it. It's interesting. You won't, find any, you won't find any Jewish doctor that would ever, ever, for stomach ailments, prescribe alcoholic beverages. And I'm going to tell you why in a minute. Alcoholic beverages destroy your stomach. They don't make it better. And I'll show that to you in a minute. So the problem that we have is they're not the same wine that relieves stomach problems. What is the wine that does? The same wine that we just talked about. It's pure and simple grape juice is all that it is. And if you're in parts, how many of you traveled overseas? How many of you have ever gotten like absolutely disgustingly sick drinking water overseas? I mean, you can't tell, you don't know where this stuff comes from, man. I mean, it's some of the nastiest stuff. There's only been a few countries we've ever been to where you could say, man, this water is good water. Everything else, you want to avoid it like the plague. And so, hey, stop drinking water that's going to hurt you and start drinking grape juice. That makes sense. Drink juice. Interesting, isn't it? I mean, even parents with little children know the benefit of, of, of giving their children juice. I mean, their stomach's upset. What do you give them? A, a, a Heineken? I mean, what are we talking about here? What's the deal? But that's kind of the way we think. So anyway, it's not the same stuff. And it's also not the wine used to, to worship the Lord. In, in Deuteronomy 14, uh, let me just read it to you. It says this, You shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide. The tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil, if the firstlings of your herds and your flocks, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God. The Hebrew word, obviously, for good wine is the same thing, and that's wine that's 40 days old or less. And so the point is very simple. Um, alcoholic beverages are fermented to a stage that is always discouraged in the Bible. All right? And all the passages and all the things that you hear people use to justify it uh, are just totally distorted beyond any recognition of what actually is being said. Number five, alcoholic beverages cause emotional, physical, and spiritual problems. Emotional, physical, and spiritual problems. Look at it says, who has woe, who has sorrow, emotional problems, who has strife, who has complaints, uh, relationship problems, social problems, who has needless bruises, who has bloodshot eyes. What's that? Physical problems. And the answer was, if you remember, those who linger over wine who are intoxicated by it. 
I mean, this, I mean, this is simple stuff when you look at it. But, you know, I've read more articles and talked to enough people to realize how serious the problem is in our society and the consequences of drinking alcoholic beverages with regards to emotional, physical, and uh, social well-being is staggering. And, you know, it's like you don't even know where to start. I'm sitting down and thinking, man, you know what? We could go on for all summer just discussing this. And, uh, you know, and we're not going to. But the reality of it is is that there's no way you can get around these simple facts or statements that alcoholic beverages cause emotional, physical, and spiritual problems. Let me give you some highlights or lowlights, I would imagine. American Family Journal, 1989, Dr. Spicard, we quoted him in our first week in his book called Dying for a Drink. This is what he says. Every 22 minutes, another life is lost to a drunk driver. That comes out to approximately 24,000 people a year that are killed by drunk drivers or die themselves because of drinking. Now, that doesn't include everyone that's hurt, that's maimed, that's injured. That doesn't include any of that. He says the cost of society is estimated at $50 billion per year in the United States. And beyond those statistics lies the, the ruined and priceless lives of millions of men, women, and children. Gallup poll. One out of three persons said that alcohol has caused trouble in his or her, her family. Let me just ask you a personal question. How many of you have emotional scars today as adults because of a drinking problem that someone had in your family? Huh? It's a real problem, isn't it? Not only emotional problems, but how many were physically abused because of drinking? How many spouses were abused? How many children are abused because of someone who gets drunk that doesn't know what they're doing? It lowers their inhibitions. They do things they normally wouldn't do. And then afterwards they cry and tell you how sorry they are. But the cycle continues to go on and on. See, you know, th- this, is a, this is a very real problem. And I think that we bury our head in the sand when we don't real recognize, nor do we want to admit how dangerous this really is. The suicide rate of alcoholics is 30 times that of the general population. Heavy drinking is involved in 60% of all violent crimes, 30% of all suicides, and 80% of all fire and drowning accidents. Here's an interesting uh, statistic. During the Prohibition era of 1919 through 1933, crime decreased 54% and the death rate due to alcoholism decreased 43%. All but one of 98 alcoholic clinics were closed for lack of patients and all 60 of the Neil Cure clinics were closed for lack of patients afflicted with alcoholism. After the repeal of prohibition laws, drunkenness increased more than 350%, and over 50% of all fatal traffic accidents are alcohol-related. It's like, you know, I don't know. I mean, how, how much of this stuff do you want to hear? I got too much of it. Here's a good one. This was in yesterday's, or actually this morning's sports page. Some of you remember... Uh, the three baseball players on the Cleveland Indians that were killed earlier this year. Let's just read this, a little bit of it. Bob, Bob Ojeda never lost consciousness and knew almost immediately that his two Cleveland Indian teammates boat slammed into a dock on a central Florida lake three months ago. Ojeda, nervous and with a scarred forehead visible beneath the bill of his cap, spoke with the media Friday for the first time since his serious since being seriously injured in the boating accidents March 24th in Florida that killed relief pitcher Steve Owen and Tim Cruz. The three had just gone onto Little Lake Nelly for some fishing in the evening after a family picnic when the boat piloted by Cruz hit the dock that protruded 90 feet into the body of the water. Owen was killed instantly. Cruz, 31, pronounced dead the next day. Ojeda needed surgery to reattach his scalp to his head. It says beer and vodka were found in the boat and tests showed that Cruz was legally drunk. But Ojeda and Olin's widow, Patty, contend that Cruz was perfectly capable of operating the 18-foot boat. Of course he was. And because why? Because wine is a mocker. It's deceitful. 
It's not going to cause a problem. What's one drink going to do? It's not going to hurt anything, right? I can handle it. Tim Cruz was the safest boatman that I know. I felt completely safe. I wish he could call me right now and I'd go with him again. Alcohol became an issue. I can't sit here and try to rebuff it, whatever. I know him. I know he could have done brain surgery if he was a brain surgeon. Certainly we're not choir boys. Everybody does things, then bad things happen, and we look for reasons, and we ask why did it happen, so they point to something and go on. But it just doesn't work like that. Mrs. Olin agreed that alcohol did not cause the accident. I don't care what his legal limit was. He was not drunk. If he was, I wouldn't have let my husband go out on the boat with him. It has never been an issue, and it never will be. We look for reasons, we point our finger, and then we go on doing the same old stupid stuff. Because we don't want to accept responsibility for what's creating and causing the problems. You know, when you read this and you go on and it's just kind of, you know, it's interesting. The other day I thought, <clears throat> sitting we were talking with, I was talking with a friend at lunch and I thought, you know what? What harm is there drinking one drink? You know, have a drink. You have a drink and uh, you know what? Then you go out and you get in your car. Then you get in an accident. Somebody gets killed. Somebody gets hurt. And you're sitting there thinking, well, what could one drink do? And you go through the consequences of your whole life because you made a decision to have a drink. For whatever reason, whatever you did it, whatever the reasons were, and I'm not even, you know, I don't really care to get into all that. I'm just asking the question, what harm can one drink do? And you read this and you go on and you begin to realize, like some of the people here realize, that you know what, that it's more serious than we make it out to be. Alcohol is a depressant like anesthesia. It makes it harder to make the decisions that driving demands. It slows reactions. It causes drowsiness, loss of alertness, and concentration. It blurs and reduces vision. Rachel Kelly in USA Today writes, Alcohol is a drug, a sedative, a depressant. It's a mood-altering drug that slows down people's reflexes. Alcohol is a narcotic, a poison. Anyone who's consumed enough to be impaired is the one who has overdosed on that drug. It's not the falling down drunk that's killing people on the highways, it's the social drinker, the person who's been out to lunch or who's returning from a ball game, who's had a couple of beers and gets in a car to drive. It says it's the social drinker, the person who can afford to drink and to drive. It's not the poverty-stricken person in the ghetto who's causing the carnage. It's the social drinker, the person who has money. It's the cocktail crowd. It's the kids coming home from a prom or a graduation party. She goes on with some hard conclusions, and they're very simple. But the real answer lies in educating our kids not to drink, not even to start, total abstinence. Everybody is crying about the carnage on the highways, but thousands of parents stand by and let their kids drink themselves to death. We permit our young people to be brainwashed, brainwashed by alcohol advertising with its constant insinuation that drinking, having fun, and being athletic are somehow synonymous. We've got to get back to our old-fashioned morals, and parents have got to stop blaming everybody else, especially teachers. It's a parent's responsibility and position to teach children right and wrong, including what's wrong about alcohol. And I've got to ask you, as a parent or as a grandparent, what are you teaching your kids or grandchildren? You go down through all this, and it becomes very apparent to me that, uh, that the physical problems are one thing, the emotional problems are something else, the social problems are there as well. But, I mean, it's, it's like... It goes on and on. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, I want to mention this to you because it relates back to the passage that's taken out of context as far as stomach. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services connects alcohol with cancer of the mouth, tongue, pharynx, esophagus, stomach problems. Interesting, it doesn't cure stomach problems, it causes them. Intestinal disorders, chronic pancreatitis, 
permanent liver disorders, lack of vitamin absorption, kidney disease, pulmonary disease, problems of infertility and impotence, brain damage, and many other medical consequences such as fetal alcohol syndrome. What's the point? I guess the point is it doesn't sound like a very smart thing to do. And there's something else that needs to be mentioned. I'll mention this in closing. And next week I've got ten suggestions on how we respond to this. And I want to go down through them and take our time to do it. Because really the key of everything that we learn and study is responding in a way that's appropriate. We've got to do something about what we learn. We've got to stop just listening to tapes, stop studying the Bible, stop reading this stuff, and then go out and do the same stupid things that we've always done. The purpose of Scripture is to help us to change our behavior, to align with what God teaches. It has to affect and, and, and change the way that we live our life. And so I want to just close with a thought, and uh, I want to challenge you to consider the same thing. But in 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 through 5, I want to read this to you. Because I want you to understand something that, that I struggle with and I'll share it with you in a couple of minutes. So just kind of be patient with me. But Ephesians 5.18 says, Don't get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but to be filled with the Spirit of God. There's a contrast with being controlled by God and controlled by... Isn't it interesting they call alcoholic beverage spirits? Don't get drunk with spirits, but be filled with the Spirit of God. There's a contrast between being controlled by alcoholic beverages or being controlled by the Spirit of God. There's a definite contrast that we need to understand. It's a matter of control. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 5. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life or for human desires, but listen, but rather for the will of God. And he's talking to every person who's come to know Christ. He's saying this. You know what? You have spent enough time in the past doing what non-believers choose to do. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange, speaking of other non-Christians, that once you become a Christian, your non-Christian friends think it's strange that you don't plunge with them in the same flood of dissipation. There's our word again, that which is not profitable, that has no value. They think it's strange that you don't do that, and they heap abuse on you for not doing it. Oh, what are you, a Jesus freak now? What's the matter? You're a Christian now? You're not going to drink anymore? You can't go out and have a couple beers with your buddies? You can't have a drink? You can't do this? Oh, man, what's your problem? I mean, what are you, too uptight, righteous now? You know, what's one beer going to do? What's one beer going to hurt? And that's the way that goes, and they abuse you until you finally get to the point of saying, yeah, you know what, one beer can't hurt, really? Well, what did we just learn for the last three weeks? If one beer can't hurt, what can? And you go through this, but that's the way it works. But listen to what God says. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The bottom line that every Christian has to struggle with is, are you either going to be influenced by God to do the things that God wants you to do, the will of God, or are you going to be swayed and influenced by men doing the will of man? He said, but the bottom line is, no matter what you do, you're going to be judged for your actions, and there's consequences for what you would do. And God's not mocked by any of it. Don't be deceived by that. One drink can kill you or kill someone else, and that'd probably be worse. And that's what you have to live with for the rest of your life. You know, I'm going to close on this because before I was a Christian, you know, party time always was associated with drinking. And now if you really think about it, party time to kids today is associated with drinking and drugs and sex. And those three things go hand in hand. And uh, that's party time. And in 1978, when I invited Jesus Christ into my life, I was immediately, I mean, we're not talking a process here, but I was immediately convicted about the things that I was doing that weren't right before God. And drinking was one of them. I mean, it didn't take long to figure it out. It was associated with my lifestyle as a non-Christian. I did things, said things, everything that, that we talked about, everything that God says, I can relate story after story, and I'm not going to bore you with it. But I know exactly that this is true. 
And when I became a Christian, I was immediately convicted that, you know what, that's not the lifestyle that God wants me to live anymore. Isn't that fascinating? And that was 15 years ago, and I stopped drinking. And then as time goes on, and maybe some of you can relate to this, but time goes on, you get a little more sophisticated in your Christianity. Uh, you start to read the verses, and you read the commentaries, and by the time you're done, you're confused, and you don't know anything what's right or wrong anymore. You know, and by the time all these people come out of different seminaries that are liberal, that are teaching people that we're not sure that the Bible is real anymore, we don't know what is. But I'll tell you what, one thing I can't deny, one thing I know is true, is the conviction of my life by the Spirit of God was true, whether I'm debating on whether this word wine is alcoholic in this context, or in this passage, or in this one over here, or in this one back here, there's one thing that I knew was, and that was I was convicted about what I was doing, it was wrong before God. And I can live with myself trying to keep doing the same things. So you follow what I'm saying? How many can relate to this? Language, drinking, sexual activities, uh, lying, stealing, cheating, all those things. And we're going to talk about it next week, but there's a very real contrast between how a Christian is supposed to live versus a non-Christian, and God points out the differences between the two. I'm just going to share it just in the context of drinking. I was convicted that I should stop drinking. Fifteen years go by, and all of a sudden, the obscurity or all, those, all the, the pain and the suffering and the anguish that I caused my wife, uh, that I caused, caused friends, people around me, all the things that I did back then, oh, you know what, it's not as real anymore because it's so far away. Because if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature, all things pass away, everything becomes new, and God, over a period of time, helps you to forget those things. Not to dwell on those things, but to move ahead with your life. And that's a wonderful gift that God gives us to forget about how crummy we really were. But sometimes it helps to remember how crummy we really were. Because now, here it is 15 years later, and I'm thinking, what's so wrong with having a beer every now and then? What's wrong with having a drink? It's not that big a deal. Not now, because see, it's different now. I'm more sophisticated now. I know, what, I'm under grace now. Oh. That's good. So I can do now what I was convicted initially about quitting to do. Now I can start to somehow or another manipulate and justify it and begin to do it again. Can you relate to this? Is this just me or what? All right, here's the problem. It was just as wrong then as it is today. You follow what I'm saying? The same Spirit of God lives in me today. And he teaches the same truth about the Word of God today. I don't care what anybody else says. I don't care what everybody else is doing. The reality of that is still very apparent and true in my life. It was wrong when I first came to know Christ. It's still wrong today. For all the reasons that God says. Because it's not a wise way to live. And I can't get out of my head the fact that John the Baptist, the way he lived his life. And one of the things was, he didn't drink attracted his people to their God. There's too many of us that want to have the best of everything, the best of what the world has to offer, and yet be a Christian too. I can fit in with any crowd. Chameleon Christians, you've changed colors with the group that you're in. There's too many of us out there. There's too many of us that aren't listening to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our life. That same Holy Spirit that convicted us when we came to know Christ, that God had a different way for us to live. We're being inundated with a bunch of garbage by advertisements and media and friends and people we work with that says, hey man, you know what? Hey, it's not that big a deal. And what's worse is, we're even doing it to ourselves as Christians. What's a drink? We're not causing each other to stumble because we all know we're saved and we understand what the Bible has to say. So, hey, let's have a beer. It's amazing to me. 
But isn't that the deception of the enemy? To try to destroy everything that God says is true. Next week we'll take a look at ten appropriate responses. And I want to challenge you to consider the responses. But I want you to challenge, I challenge you to consider this. You know what? Are you living a wise lifestyle? Whoever gets drunk or led astray by alcohol isn't wise. It's as simple as it gets. I don't know. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this opportunity again to look at uh, your word. Thank you for giving us direction in life. God, help us to see where each one of us are individually so that we can own up to our own responsibilities. God, it doesn't take a genius to see all the hurt that's caused in our society by alcoholic beverages and drunkenness and alcoholism and all that goes along with it. Battered wives and even husbands and children and friends and family members who have to step in financially at times to pick up the pieces for lives of those who have, been, who have fallen into alcoholism or drunken behavior patterns. God, the emotional scars that people even today carry with them over their childhoods about things that happened in their past. God, there's nothing good if we look in a society that's being destroyed by it and yet the advertisers continue to promote it. Help us to see that you have a different way for your people to live, that you convict us of what is true, that you guide us into truth, that you give us the strength and the courage and the power to be able to live lives that are free from that type of addiction and attraction, that you tell us that if any man or woman's in Christ, that old things pass away and all things become new, that we can thank you and praise you if you freed us from that past. We, we need to sometimes go back to that and recognize what you've done in our life. We need to continue to pray and look for an escape as we're tempted on a daily basis to fall back into that lifestyle as Satan tries to neutralize us uh, from doing that which is right before you and being a witness in the world that we live in. God, help us uh, not to be prudish or self-righteous as we deal with other people who drink, but to continue to challenge them and encourage them to consider the consequences of the action. And God, we just thank you that you can free up our minds and, and give us clear, clarity of thought and direction. Uh, as we stay away from things that have a power or ability to control us. And we just thank you and praise you for your word that is true today as it was in my case in my life 15 years ago and it will be for all of eternity. You say that your word is the same yesterday, today, and forever and we can count on it, we can bank on it. We don't have to consider whether it's still valid today. God, we just thank you for that. May we continue to believe it, uh, that it's inerrant. May we believe that it's accurate. May we believe that it is the word of God for us in our lives today. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.